All right, I'm going to go in the intro now. All right, hit it. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 16 of Hip Squared, American Fantastic's pop culture podcast celebrating everything from the mainstream to the independent, weird, old, and local. Troy, how's it going? Dude, I'm exhausted. It's been a busy week. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I've had an exhausting night because we've been potty training my daughter, Gaia, who's two and a half years old, and all of a sudden she's on potty strike. (laughs) (laughs) What? Okay, what's potty strike? Explain this to somebody who hasn't had kids. So she was going fairly consistently for a while, and then all of a sudden the last few days she just doesn't want to go, so she just Uh, keeps having accidents. So just refusing to get on the potty, which is... Oh, kind man. of kind of maddening when you feel like you've been making a lot of progress, but um, I've heard it's fairly normal. It's just something that's really frustrating. I mean, I, I we've run into the same thing with Rosie. I totally understand where you're coming from, where she will have moments of relapse where uh, she's doing great, and then all of a sudden decides that she's just going to pee on the floor. Yeah. So it's. Cool. I mean, having a puppy is exactly the same as a child. So <laughs> I hear you. Well, I think it's similar. Like you said, um, no, no, I'm pretty sure it's exactly the same, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, luckily Abby didn't have to push Rosie out of her womb, but that is true. Other than that, it's pretty much the same. The fur would have gotten away. So, um, completely off topic. We've got some pretty cool topics this week. Yeah, we do. So we are doing the show a little bit different this week instead of Troy and I talking to each other about a couple of, um, pop culture, pieces we each talk to other people and then we're gonna share um those interviews with you so troy what did you uh talk about this week yeah i got a really cool opportunity um i read a book probably back in like it was either february or um may or march called the breadwinners and it's a book that is a combination of historical fiction and high fantasy written by uh, Morgan Trubloom. She's the wife of a friend of mine. So um, when I saw she uh, had written a book, I was like, oh, I've got to check this out. So uh, I read it and I got to uh, have an interview with her and kind of ask her about her book, um, some of her inspiration, what she thought about a few things. And um, yeah, kind of get her lowdown. So you'll get to hear a little bit about that later. That sounds really neat. Um, I'm glad you got that opportunity, and I'm excited to learn all about that book and that author. Uh, I spoke to my wife, Kelly, um, who listeners may have heard in Season 2, Episode 1. We talked about the hit podcast and YouTube show Critical Role. Oh, yeah. Which is a big, nerdy Dungeons & Dragons um, podcast, and Kelly's going to tell you a lot more about that soon. Oh, sweet. All right. So um, we're going to go into my conversation with Kelly first. And then um, after a very short break, you're going to hear from Troy talking to Miss Truebloom. All right. Sounds like a plan. Let's hit it. All right. See you soon. Thanks for listening to Hip Squared Season 2, Episode 16. This is your other co-host, John Beecham. And since Troy was able to speak to Morgan Trubloom, writer of The Breadwinner, um, I invited my wife, Kelly Shiflett, to share this episode with me. Uh, you may have heard her on Season 2, Episode 1, when we talked about Me Too movement and Roseanne and her badass female vengeance in uh, Final Fantasy XI. Uh, but tonight I have her here to talk with me, um, about the, um, Dungeons and Dragons podcast and, um, video series Critical Role. Uh, she knows a lot about, more about that than I do. Um, but I will say that we just had all of our time putting our daughter to bed. (laughs) So if we sound... A little um, stir crazy. That's why. Dairy is for the devil. Yeah. So my um, my mom came into town. Kelly's mother in law, and um, very 
generously took us out to dinner. Um, after her swim meet, we went to a place called Mama's Barbecue, I think. That was really good. Um, they wanted to finish up at Homemade Ice Cream and Pie Kitchen. And um, we got our daughter, Gaia. What did you, what did she call it? Blue ice cream? Yeah, blue ice cream. But that was just the sherbet. But she didn't want that at first because I think the texture was too cold and too hard. Yeah. But there- once it melted, she was interested. But in the meantime, she was totally interested in John's dairy ice cream. Yeah. And I didn't want her to miss out on the ice cream experience completely. So I let her have a few licks of my um, mocha chip ice cream. And that might have messed her up a little bit. Oh. <laughs> or two and a half hours of little bit. Yeah, but after a um, a hard one struggle, and um, yeah, some some medicinal practices that while um, that made her eventually comfortable um, are a little too medicinal. Crafty. Meaning we had to do a suppository. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so she wasn't very happy about that, but it worked out in the end. So I guess the lesson is, um, if your kids are sensitive to dairy, especially if they're toddlers, uh, don't give them even a little bit. Um, even if it's, it's hard. It's, yeah, it's very hard. Because I totally understand of like her wanting, like you wanting to have that experience with her and wanting her to have that mm-hmm. experience. She hasn't licked an ice cream cone. Yeah, and eventually, she did like the blue ice cream that wouldn't have hurt her. Yeah. But- yeah, it's changed. She's also been um, potty training, and she's a little bit shy about trains leaving the station, so to speak. <laughs> but um, yeah, we know we know y'all aren't turned in for a parenting podcast completely, uh, <laughs> but we did just kind of want to uh, describe a little bit about our night. So Kelly, um, you introduced me to Critical Role, and I've yes. um, kind of been following along a little bit, like watching episodes with you, because it gives us a chance to bond together. It's yeah. also something I feel like I can drop in and out of because even if I don't know the whole overarching story, I know a little bit about like what's going on in specific yeah. situations. But what pulled you into Critical Role? What made you a big fan of it? Well, I guess we started um, wanting to get into D&D together at first. And you even mentioned uh, your one of your favorite podcasts, uh, The Adventure Zone with the McElroy brothers and father. Yeah, we... Troy talked about that, um, I think it was this season. Yeah. But, I mean, basically that's a cool one. They were neat and everything, and I I liked um, that they were just kind of stumbling and bumbling along Mm -hmm. with it. And even though I think the youngest McElroy, who's the DM or GM. Yeah, Griffin. Yeah. yeah. Um, Even though he wasn't that experienced, he was totally able to, like take that on and have yeah. fun with it. Um, and I think the big distinction between um, the Adventure Zone and Critical Role is, like the Adventure Zone was a spinoff of uh, My Brother and My Brother and Me, which is a comedy podcast. And Adventure Zone is like comedy and storytelling. But I think Critical Role gets a lot more nuts and bolts in terms of the combat, in terms of like making it a real... Um, True D&D. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the uh, DM, Matt, Matthew Mercer, um, it, he's a storyteller, and he sets up the scene, and he gives details, and each character, even when made on the fly, has its own personality, and the land has its own customs and personality. It, it's You're following a story, mm-hmm. even though even though it's just kind of improvised uh, with dice rolls and and characters and you start to fall in love with these characters just like you would in, you know, just like any nerd would with any nerdy book. Yeah, it's it's neat that those characters can become so well-developed even though um, there's not necessarily a writer with a grand plan from beginning to end, but, like, these people are improvising, which I also... Like, it's almost like they're evolving the characters, but they don't really have 100% complete control over it because it's also, like, a combination of everything else going on at once. Well, and it, and so I liked the Adventure Zone, but uh, it's, there's, I need some more um, women in my podcast. Yeah. It's a little too male-dominated. 
Well, it's, yeah, let and, me um, announce my privilege because that didn't even occur to me <laughs> <laughs> that the Adventure Zone was all white males and the critical role is not. Yeah, so, well, and then so I had I had looked around and I'd found the Sneak Attack podcast, which does, um, it's um, four players and one DM and one of the players is a woman. And I, I really got into that and listened um along to that for their first season or first campaign, I should say. And, um, and then when I'd finished that, I kind of looked around, I found Dames and Dragons as another podcast, which was decent. Um, again, I, I don't know if it's when they get on a mic or when, or people in general, when people in general get on a mic or, you know, uh, public speaking, um, I know I can do this sometimes too. I get a little too laughy, a little too jokey. And, you know, there's, there's a fine line between having, um, like, um, inside jokes, Mm -hmm. but then doing them over and over and over and just getting the yucks out over the mic. And it's just like, okay, well, if you're doing this for the public, let's like, okay, let's like, you know, let's move forward. From your dick jokes all the time. Yeah, it seems seems like you have to find the right chemistry or create the right chemistry between yeah. the people in the podcast, and then then more people can enjoy it. Just besides your little group. exactly. And I had found Critical Role um, when they they had just began their uh, second campaign, and um, I was reading, or excuse me, listening to and watching, because you can watch them on YouTube as well, uh, listening to that. And um, in that campaign, there are seven players, three of which are women. Um, and they all have a great dynamic. They're all friends. Um, they do joke a lot. They do. So you should explain how they all know each other. They're voice actors. Out in California, and so they they found each other through voice acting um, or other connections yeah. in that realm. And that's really good for D and D because, like Matt Mercer, the DM, yeah. has all these voices and all these accents that he can just drop into, or like animal sound effects. And um, yeah, it's really neat because since he is so experienced with voice acting, it can become part of the improvised. Yes. Like somebody will, for example, um, like want to go into a bakery and he can just create this baker character with their own specific accent and their own kind of personality mm-hmm. um, and just present that. So it's neat that uh, there's a sophistication there. Yes. And that's that's definitely attractive. I could see, you know, why you'd want to men- mention that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was just this nice dynamic. And almost half the party are women, and it was jokey, but also serious. And they weren't afraid to cry in front of each other, or uh, as their characters, and also as themselves. You know, um, so yeah, that's one thing I thought was really brave about Critical Roles because there are some dark and hard moments. There's even yeah. character deaths. Yes, which um. Oh, yeah, so sad. Can be devastating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess we shouldn't go too. Yeah, we much don't have to spoil it. anything. It's just, yeah. it's, I think it's brave for a podcast that you know the, these people have invested so much time in these characters, mm-hmm. and their fans have invested so much love in them. And um, but it's not like one of those things where you know you can say like, okay, at the end of season two, we're gonna. Um, yeah. kill off this specific main character yeah. or like well Matthew Mercer even though he does not pull his punches as the DM and he I've noticed in certain situations when the 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 battles are going poorly he doesn't try to strong arm them or anything like that um, I think it's happened twice now in both campaigns that I've watched um, where he kind of looks at the players and he goes, you know, it's up to you pretty much. But he's like, things aren't looking good. You might want to start making other choices. Yeah. 
So it gives them a little warning. So things aren't completely. And it's not as blatant as I just said it, but like he, he, he has cues or certain words that he's like Mm -hmm. eye contact that he's making. Like, do you want to run? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to disengage? That's now is the time basically, you know, it's, it's so neat because doing that in front of like a group of friends or people that you are just gaming with, you know that you can very easily like make new, make new characters, or you might have agreed already. Like, what what kind of campaign is this going to be? But um, it's so heavy when that happens, and especially for the person who's put all of that energy and spirit, because it's almost like yeah, this part of you is dying too, or well, like this part of your imagination at least. Like, and not this only thing, this that, thing yeah, not only that, it's that character. They have that person has created a backstory and we weaved it into the into the world that they uh play in basically and um Matthew takes that character and weaves it into the world that they play in and so even even though like a character dies there's still stuff that we can't know about them like i don't want to one per uh, uh, one of the people's characters died and other people wanted to know some of his secrets, the character's secrets. And that person looked at Matthew and Matthew's like, you can't say anything yeah, because, because it's still person's... part of this world. Yeah. And so they must tell him things that they don't tell the rest of his party so that he might have some sure. background that the other people don't. Yeah. Cause they each create their characters separately and they kind of, key in to Matthew Mercer and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this when they're creating their character. And he'll say, well, um, so-and-so is doing maybe something similar, but if you do something like this along those lines and he gives them a couple options, then, you know, so it's it's not a lot of uh, overlay, character uh, overlay. But, um, and then they also create their backstory and some of them give Matt a lot of leeway. Like, yeah, also he can kind of improvise and mm-hmm. like color in the lines sometimes about what their backstory what is, happens. but then other people's are very specific. And So, for example, we, we have a D&D campaign um, ourselves. Myself, John, Troy, yeah. and Maple. Yeah, Maplex Monk, our producer, a.k.a. Maple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and... Um, John is playing a bard who is a womanizer, um, which I I found so hilarious because this isn't too big of a reveal, but there's a bard character in Critical Role in the first campaign who is a womanizer. And um, like probably halfway through the campaign with no, with no prompting whatsoever, Matt introduces this NPC that the bard then tries to um, to seduce. Seduce, and when he gets her to the bedroom, she's about to murder him because he is her father. Oh my god! Yeah, it's <laughs> pretty hardcore. She, yeah, because he left her mother pregnant and alone. Wow! So she's come to gain her vengeance. She That's... came to get his her vengeance, and she asked, "What you know?" Is there any last words? And he said, go ahead and do it. I didn't know if, had I known, you know, I, you know, I'd love to know you now. And because of that interaction, uh, she spared him. That's some intense storytelling. Yeah. And so when you said you were going to be a womanizing bard, I was like, I was going to love child coming back and trying to kill him. Yeah. That always is a possibility. (laughs) Because you think of, characteristics that are comic and maybe how they've been stereotyped in comedy and like in movies or TV. But then the, the cold practical side of it is, yeah, if people are very promiscuous and not careful about it. Then having children that they don't know is a very real possibility. And, you know, being raised without a, I just just love, even though that's like so obvious, like that could be an option. I, I, it never even hit me in this game because, you know, like that wasn't even in, in Sam's brain. That was the character, the bard of, of his, you know, that would happen to his character. But Matt just was like, yep, 
you have a daughter. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, since it is a really cool YouTube show, mm-hmm. um, I also wanted to describe a little bit about the visual layout. Well, how do you mm-hmm. how do you see the DM and like how do you see the people playing each character? Like, what does it actually look like when you look on the screen and you're watching Critical Role? Um. Well, they have three uh, screens, two split that's kind of horizontally lengthwise where it shows four characters on one, like a top screen and three on the bottom screen. And then Matt's on the left. It's just like a portrait view of him. And uh, there's usually, you know, like stuff that relates to um, that campaign in, in the background that kind of highlights certain aspects. Um, they have a beautiful um, wood tabletop, and they all have, like, uh, wooden trays that I would love to have. Oh, man, so beautiful. But um, I don't know. I'm just they, they set it up. They each all have their own different character, uh, uh, like, character aspects. Like, one of them, Lara is just like a dice hoarder and has a huge dice bag that, and she has her own little dice jail. So when she gets like a critical fail, she throws the, the <laughs> dice in the dice jail. Uh, so, I hadn't seen that. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and then other, other people just kind of like make fun of, like poke fun of her, you know, for thinking that that's actually a thing. Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, like that matters. But, um, but, uh, um, and then they all have their own little mugs of whatever they're drinking and, they they use um, the app D and D Beyond, and so they usually have that in front of them too. Yeah, and that's also one of their big sponsors too. Yes, exactly. So, uh, I mean, did I answer your question? Is yeah, that what you I think so. Wanted? I I also really like um, when they're in combat. A lot of times they'll show terrain and they'll show the actual little yes. character models, which is yes, really neat. Yes, but they get from Dwarven Forge, who they also kind of you know. Get some help from, um, but yeah, it, and that's really beautiful. You, you could listen to this on a, a podcast, um, and that's what I do sometimes. Um, I, I sometimes will just set it up and and have it playing in the background as a YouTube video and do things around the house. And then when a, a map comes up when they're in battle, I might, you know, come over peek at what they're describing. They, they do a really good job of describing where everyone's at, um, but you just kind of miss some of the nuance and their the facial feature, like their their face goes so much into it as well um, to show jokes yeah. or emotions. And I stuff could like see that. how people would like to listen to it as a podcast because the episodes are fairly long. They are extremely long. They can be. Um, Three and a half to five hours. Yeah, three hours is probably like a very short night for them, and they go they go every Thursday. And you can um, watch them live on Twitch if, as mm-hmm. they as they air live, and um, then you can watch them later once it's for free to on YouTube, YouTube on channel. Monday. Yeah, it's really neat. Well, um, if any of that sounds interesting to you, you all should check it out. Um, and if you sound interested in playing D&D with your friends. It's it's going through a big resurgence right now, and I, I can see why. It gives people a reason to be social, um, interact with each other face-to-face, mm-hmm. feel their imaginations, uh, and tell stories together. Um, and I also wanted to thank you, Kelly, so much mm. for recording this with me. Oh, yeah. And um, after a hard night, I wasn't even sure that you were still <laughs> uh, up for this, but um, thank you very much. Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. All right, well, that's uh, Toodles for the two of us, and now we'll get back to the rest of the show. Thanks. Hi. Hey. Um, <laughs> go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Morgan True Bloom, and I am an author. My book is uh, The Breadwinner. It's a historical fantasy uh, young adult fiction series. And I've read The Breadwinner, but uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us about it. Give us a, kind of a synopsis of the, uh, of the book. All right. Um, so The Breadwinner focuses on the life of a 16-year-old Russian immigrant named Pasha Shavalsky, and he's living in New York City during the 1920s. Um, and life's kind of hard uh, being an immigrant back then. And so uh, he ends up having to join a street gang called the Breadwinners to support his widowed mother and little sister. And so he has to uh, steal and bootleg and street fight 
uh, for money. And it's, it's hard for him because he's kind of like a gentler, more soft-spoken uh, type of person. And he's generally a, a good kid. So, it you know, living that kind of life is not easy on him. But um, things start happening and he gets a visit from the mythical firebird, which in Russian folklore is kind of like the equivalent to a phoenix. And uh, weird things start happening. He starts running into gypsies who, you know, they breathe fire. They do all kinds of crazy magical stuff. And he ends up at this uh, gypsy circus in Grand Central Station where he kind of meets an underground magical community. And he meets a man named Staccato Nimbus who uh, tells him that he is heir to the throne in another world called Valer. And he ends up going with him to catch the firebird um, to kind of help save the world from this um, oppressive country and this oppressive king. And so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much yeah, it's it. It's a pretty jam-packed book. <laughs> that's yeah. a, and that's only like, uh, for, for listeners out there, that's only like halfway, that's only like half of it. It, it goes into the full story. It's really interesting. Um, I read this, I read it on uh, back a few months ago and like I've been wanting to interview um, Morgan for a while. So I'm glad we finally got the chance to do this. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So tell me about um, some of the characters. This has quite a few characters in uh, in here that are like kind of are in the book the whole time and draw a lot of focus. Uh, were any of your characters like some, uh, inspired by people you knew? Um, a few. Uh, I will say I don't usually like deliberately base them on someone, mm-hmm. but Sometimes I start writing and they start picking up like traits of people I know. Um, and then I just kind of go with it. But there is one in particular um, that comes to mind. Uh, and that would be um, Pasha and Staccato, who are both uh, based on my husband, Michael. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> when you, <laughs> now that I think about it, when you mention it, it's like, yeah, I could, I could see that. Um, I mean, Pasha is this like really friendly, like big hearted um, kind of kid that uh, mm-hmm. is tra- there to support his family. So yeah, uh, yeah, I could see, I could see Michael there. Um, mm-hmm. How about how about Staccato though? Like, uh, he's he's so, yeah. Go ahead. So that one's a bit hard. It's funny because whenever I mention this, people usually are like, "Oh, I can see Pasha, but yeah. Staccato." <laughs> So I think Staccato is more like how I think Michael wishes he were or <laughs> how he thinks he is. Um, so they're both very ambitious and hardworking and goal-oriented. But uh, I think Michael wishes he were someone who kind of had lots of uh, powerful connections <laughs> to powerful people and <laughs> the leader. But, you know, they, they're both very hardworking, just, um, you know, goal-oriented down people. Down-to-earth down people. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, so So now that you, and now you'll have to, well, we'll talk about this, but you'll have to like keep pulling those characters in and uh, have, like see how they evolve in the next, uh, in the next books as well. But we'll get to that later. Um, one of the other characters that I really wanted to know about was uh, Katya, uh, Pasha's younger sister, who is this just like kind of big personality in a small package of a, of a, of a like young nine-year-old. So tell me a bit about her. Was like, she inspired by anyone? Or did anybody inspire her or, yeah? So I don't, like, I don't usually, like, come right out and say this, but she was actually, um, she's kind of loosely inspired by me when I was that age. Oh, really? So, (laughs) yeah, I I was kind of that type of kid who was very hyper and bouncing off the walls. (laughs) And so (laughs) I guess that kind of stuck its way in there. Yeah, I mean, she is a huge personality, like, especially... And in the book, it kind of plays, it kind of like makes you think maybe she has this big personality because of like her upbringing. When she was um, a child, she uh, was diagnosed with, what is it, with uh, like the eyes? Uh, Wilson's disease? Yes. Uh, with Wilson's mm-hmm. disease. And she like has to get taken out of school for that. So she's, so she's at home all the time with her mom. And you kind of, you kind of imagine mm-hmm. like, oh man, she's just like, gets like wound up in this, in this, uh, home life. And it, it really expresses herself when Pasha, sh- whenever Pasha shows up or there's other people and she like kind of steals the show yeah. or, um, like draws a lot of the attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so how did you, so another thing is like this, this follows the story of a Russian family that's gone through some hard times. Uh, cause Pasha, Katya and 
Lydia all fled Russia when their um, father, or when the um, father of the family um, ended up getting killed, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, by the Red Army. Yeah, yeah. So how? tell me about, the, the big thing I want to know was like, how did you go about your research on the Russian? Because there's Russian, um, like, words scattered throughout the book um, where either Pasha or Faina are um, speaking Russian and, or like even uh, Kolokov, the mob boss, um, mentioned Russian phrases. Mm-hmm. Oh, he may not. Uh, I think, well, he did, I know he did once, okay. but um, yeah, so I would, uh, so I did start out um, using Google Translate, especially for like simple <laughs> phrases, <laughs> Fair enough. But any time, yeah, <laughs> I didn't know where to go to at the time. Although now I do know where to find a Russian translator. So. Oh, there you go. But um, yeah, uh, at the time though, I I used Google Translate, and I would I'd run it back through like Russian to English, then English to Russian, or the other way around, uh, just to check. And I would check the individual words just to make sure like everything was about right. And then I also use something called word hippo, um, which it's not really different, but you know, just, just to have two different sources. Uh, right. Like, then an, for things, yeah, like two, two opinions mm-hmm. all, uh, can always be helpful, especially when translations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People, people um, like calling out translations when they're bad. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, it, do get afraid of that sometimes. So I, I hope it's okay. Like, I hope it didn't hey, bosh it up it, too bad. It looked great to me, so. Um, <laughs> but so uh, it looks great. <laughs> right. Um, but, like, what about, so what about, like, the Russian phrases? Like, surely you can't, like, just put those in Google Translate. Like, where did you end up uh, coming up with those or finding those? And are they, like, are they real Russian phrases? Are they ones that were made up for the mm-hmm. book or... Yep, they're real. Um, I just I googled um early on. I just googled like Russian phrases and um idioms because like if you ever hear any like Russian phrases, um, mm-hmm. they've got some really interesting analogies, like very poetic, colorful way of speaking. Uh, like things like the still waters are inhabited by devils and, uh. Yeah, all kinds of stuff like that. So when I looked it up, I got all kinds of lists. Um, But one that was really interesting, like I remember at one point I was just looking for a way, like an expression that was something like, oh my gosh, like what was the equivalent? And uh, something came up that they use a lot, which is blin. Well, blin literally translated means pancake. And at first I was like, why are they shouting pancake? (laughs) Well, it's, yeah, it turns out that like for them, pancake, like the word for pancake sounds like their word for like a cuss word. So it's basically like how we would say shucks or fudge oh, instead of. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah. It's, okay. I was going to say that I remembered that scene in the book and, uh, or I think when I was reading that scene in the book, I was, I was kind of confused like pancake, what's going, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it's a, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine how uh, difficult it is finding idioms in other languages. So, yeah, the the but like it comes up so naturally in the book. Like it doesn't feel like kind of pushed on you. It's it's just like that's how these characters talk and how they end up uh, what they end up saying. But I remember him saying in the book, there's this scene with uh, I think they say Blin like a multiple times, um, but in the um, but there's one scene where Pasha says pancakes and everyone goes like, Oh, or, uh, he says pancakes and everybody's like, did you say pancakes? It's like, Oh, sorry. I, I thought that was in Russian. In terms of like, um, the book as a whole, there is this, um, what am I trying to say? There's this big point where um, the two styles of uh, story meet, like where the um, historical fiction and the high fantasy kind of collide, and you go from one to the other, and that's at the uh, circus at Grand Central Station. So were you worried mm-hmm. about that transfer from like uh, historical fiction to high fantasy? Oh, yeah. I was, I was actually really worried because it just it just seemed like an amalgamation of so many different things. Um, 
I mean, you know, like there's a like 1920s historical fiction meets like fantasy with mermaids and stuff. And mm-hmm. I was really afraid that someone would just see that and be like, what? Like what? It sounds like she just <laughs> like slammed a bunch of things together. But um, so, yeah, I was worried. You know, they say like uh, when you write a book, like read stuff that's in your genre or you know, read books that are like your books. And I honestly, I mean, I had two genres and I couldn't find anything that had really done anything like that. Hmm. Um, but I mean, fortunately, it, is a pretty, think, it is like a very uh, interesting idea. I mean, it's like a new, I, I, I can't think of anything uh, the, that does something similar, but it, it, it pretty, it works pretty well. I mean, it's, it's this, this transfer is like of two different, uh, this transfer from one genre to another is, is, like a hard transfer, but I feel like it it's pretty smooth in the book. Oh, well, good, good. Cause I, I mean, it's definitely something that was on my mind. Um, I do think that like in the long run, it's, it's actually been more helpful than harmful. Cause I have had a lot of people like they, they read, they read what it's about and they say like, Oh, it's, it's 1920s, but like fantasy. Oh, that's a really cool mashup. Like I, I want to read that. So, um, it was something that worried me a lot, but I, I think, you know, it's worked out. So Yeah, so uh, do you, have you had people that have said like, oh yeah, I'm really into this genre, but maybe not this other one. I'll give it a shot just to see. Or like people that are like, yes. oh yeah, like I really like historical fiction, but I don't know about fantasy. But hey, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I've had lots of people that are one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, probably more fantasy people than historical fiction, because I think probably there are more people out there in general who... Who prefer fantasy over historical fiction, but uh, I know definitely there was one person in particular that they were the other way around. But hmm. yeah, I mean o- overall, it's been good, good reception. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, yeah. you do have this high fantasy world of Valere, um, which like mm-hmm. is a world all into itself. Why don't you tell me a bit about it? Because uh, in the book, you were kind of like dropped into this into this world, not knowing a whole lot, and it's. Um, given the information is given to you like over time so that you're not just flooded with a wall of text about this world that you've never been to. So tell me about, uh, tell me about Valera, especially for like uh, people that haven't read the book. So Valera, um, geography wise, like it's basically, uh, it's a world that's based in uh, the constellations. So like if you were to look at a constellation map, it would be all, almost like a mirror image of Valer. Um, so the kingdoms like uh, Aries and Taurus, the, those are constellations, but they would become kingdoms in this sense. Although I mean, it's not like a perfect mirror image because sometimes like the constellations would be a landmark as opposed to a kingdom or it might be absorbed into another kingdom. But so that's kind of what it's like geography wise. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Very unique idea. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what about the what about the inhabitants? Because there's a there's a wide range of different races in this world, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are uh, seven fey races, and that's amongst like I mean, there are people just like you and I would be mm-hmm. like two living there. Um, but there are seven fey races, and what the fey races are, they're basically um, people who can do magic, uh, and those are mermaids, um, miraculous, which miraculous is. Um, they can interpret dreams, induce dreams, and move things with their mind um, and cast illusions. And then uh, there are sylphs, which are basically like wood nymphs, um, mm-hmm. esprites, kind of like a light nymph, uh, seraphs, which are angels, uh, igneous, who breathe fire, and uh, Moira, who they have kind of like um, brief foresight. Uh, and so those are the seven fey races. And then there are also... Um, there are the Ophidians who they're evil, they're oppressors, and they do have abilities, but they're not considered fae. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason they're not considered fae is because fae are born with their powers and it's considered like a divine thing. But if you are not born that way and you try to harness that, um, then it basically becomes like black magic, like witchcraft, because it, it's like a perversion um, of a gift and it's it right. often involves dark things to you know harness that energy uh so the ophidians do so use that, magic mm-hmm. but not the same kind of magic that the fey races use yes yeah I, I will say they probably use it like in in light like i wouldn't say that all of them uh okay all of them use it 
but but some a good chunk of them do. Okay, some of them do. Um, yeah. yeah. So, like, are there any of the races that you like are particularly proud of, or that you you thought were really interesting? Because like, you have a wide range there, and they're definitely beyond your traditional Tolkien uh, three like elves, dwarves, and humans races. So. Um, as far as like any that I'm particularly proud of, um, I don't know. I, I'm pretty proud of my mermaid race only because, I mean, even though it's not something that I necessarily came up with because, you know, everyone knows about mermaids, mm-hmm. but, uh, the way, um, my mermaids have two forms. So they have a human land form and they have their mermaid form. And so they live in and out of the water and that impacts, um, a lot of the culture, I guess, mm-hmm. like their architecture, it's often built uh, halfway in the water, halfway out of the water. Um, even the way they eat, like uh, I remember writing that they eat on triclinium a lot, which is kind of like a, it's, you kind of recline where you lay down and that was so like their tails could dangle in the water. Um, oh, oh, okay, okay. That's really cool. I don't know if I picked up on that thanks. in the book. <laughs> I'm not sure if I put that in the first one. I, that might have actually came in, in the second one. It's um, at this point, it's getting hard to remember. But fair, uh, I'm sure they they've kind of blended yeah. together. Yeah, at this point. <laughs> right. Um, well, tell me about the um, the Mor- Mora because that's that's mm-hmm. who uh, Melodius is, correct? Or is that Cicada? Yes. No, it's it's it Melodius. Yeah. So Melodius mm-hmm. is this character who's. Um, he's very interesting that he kind of comes across as like the blind sage um, mm-hmm. kind of personality, but he's a Mora, which means that, like you said, he can see like just slightly into the future. So how did you, mm-hmm. how did you end up coming up with him or like, like tell, tell me about, tell me a bit about Melodius. So Melodius, he's, um, he's a former reverend, uh, um, and actually, he he did not grow up in Valer. He uh, grew up in our world, which in the book is called The Other, and um, he grew up in Germany. Oh. Uh, so he's a little bit older. Um, he plays the accordion, but he, he's blind, and um, like totally blind. But his because he's a Moira, his senses are so heightened that he doesn't really need to use like a walking stick or anything like that. Like he, he can get around pretty well Mm -hmm. um just by like looking a little bit into the future yeah partially that and his hearing so i guess you could say part of it's from being blind that he has the heightened senses Mm -hmm. but moira they kind of have they already have that too the heightened senses so it's kind of you know you add those together and he's you know he's doing great right i was gonna say are there a lot of moira in the world it seems like if you're not blind, like that would be a very like strong power, like strong powers to have is to be able to see just slightly into the future. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say there's, there's a fair amount of Moira. Um, I'm trying to think, cause I know I did like, I measured out like what the most popular races were. Um, mm-hmm. and I'd say it's probably on the, on the lower end, if you compare it to igneous and mermaids, right. but th- there's quite a few. Okay. Um, <laughs> And the other thing is, is that you have, um, you mentioned the two races, the Sylphs and the, uh, the other nymph, the Esperate, Esperates. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. are, are they like kind of, are they a bit more like offset from the rest of the, the world since they're like almost fe- like almost spirits, um, and like inhabit these kind of elemental sides or are they just as involved as every other uh, race in the world. I would think the Esperites are a little less involved, um, just because a lot of them come from uh, Mother Genesis, which is the tree of all knowledge, and she kind of she starts out like the race of Esperites, um, and they also they as, along with the Sylphs, they live longer than most people, mm. and um, so sometimes I think the Esperites they don't get as attached maybe to people or people who are not in their own kind um, for that reason. Mm-hmm. But um, okay. they, they do integrate themselves. They just, I think, sometimes I think even the Esperance might think they're a little above everyone else a little bit. And 
I think Cicada yeah. later, she kind of, <laughs> that might come across. It does a little bit, but she, she's, yeah. I think she's lovable. I think she's like hilarious and just her, her attitude and she grows up so fast in the book. Oh, <laughs> um, well, good. I'm glad to know that she's lovable. Yeah. So, um, so one more thing before we move on that I wanted to know. So like we mentioned this, the Ophidians are um, this race that kind of want to use magic. We have this character, Samuel, who is essentially there to, like, he wants to get all of uh, Volaire, like, on his level. Is that the best way to put it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Where he doesn't want um, them to, like, anybody else to have magic. Is that, um, I'm trying to think what I'm, what I'm trying to ask here. Was that, like, uh, did you know that was going to be the crux of the book or the crux of his character from the beginning, or did it... Did you have like the idea of like the firebird and then this character kind of morphed out of that? Did you realize it was going to be like a a um like a race clash between these two between these two groups or did that develop out of everything else that was happening in the world? I think I mean it was so far back I, I'm trying to remember um I'm, right, I know I'm I know asking the you to like, oh yeah, came I, first. I'm sure you were, <laughs> when you first started thinking of this book, what were you, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Um, it, I know the Firebird came first, and I know I developed the Ophidians really early on, um, but I think, I would definitely say that like, his motivation came later because I, I know I did a lot of research on, you know, how to write a good villain and what kind of story I wanted to tell um, and what I wanted to say through him and his actions. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I know he def the Ophidians, they, they came second to the Firebird, but um, okay. in the long run, I think they're, they're probably more important. <laughs> right. No, I agree. I mean, Samuel, like one of the later scenes, and I won't go into many details about this, um, between, um, is just this very intense, Samuel is this character that he scares you because of how well it seems like he could manipulate someone. Just like it's, mm-hmm. um, there was a scene where it seemed like he could just wrap someone around his finger so easily. And he, his, with how he talks, his attitude, kind of using the facts that you know against you. Um, he seems like a like a very dangerous character, and we only see him a little bit in the book, but I'm, I'm interested to see where he goes from here. Oh, well, he's, I mean, he's, you pretty much described him perfectly. That's what I was going for, was you're just someone who's very charismatic, and, you know, m- maybe it's not like when you look at him, he looks innocent, Um you know, he's even, he's, he's good looking mm-hmm. and maybe not even, just not threatening looking. But when you see what he's capable of, that he is threatening. Right. He's got this kind of like handsome as the devil um, air yeah. about him. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Well, for, uh, I do have to ask, uh, things to come. I know we mentioned it a couple of times in the book and there's a, there's a little blurb at the end, but things to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so The Glass Blower is the second book in the series, and at the moment, it is being viewed by my editor, and we're hoping to get that out by uh, spring of 2020. And I'm also working on an audiobook version of The Breadwinner, and hopefully that will be out this fall. Oh, cool. I mean, mm-hmm. we are all about audio formats here at uh, Hip Squared, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd love to hear that. Um Awesome. Is there anywhere that people can find you on social media that you want to shout yes. out here? Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So I do most of my posting about my book on Instagram. And if you follow me, you can see illustrations, which if you didn't know, um, I illustrated my cover, uh, oh. like the breadwinner's cover and the back cover. Really? Oh, I did not realize that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yep. That was me. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's really good, yeah. obviously. But uh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's really impressive. <laughs> Thanks. So I think the username is Morgan underscore true underscore bloom underscore author underscore artist. <laughs> well, there you, so trying to fit it all in there. There you go. I mean, you got it, you got it all fit in there. So yep. 
<laughs> Sounds like you got it all covered. Well, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, record this with me. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hip Squared. We wanted to give a special thanks to Morgan Trubloom and Kelly Shiflett for being such wonderful guests. Uh, if you'd like to keep up with all of our audio content, uh, best way to do that is to follow Hip Squared on iTunes and Google Podcasts. You can also follow American Fantastic on Facebook. Uh, in addition to Hip Squared, we also have a couple episodes of Five O Talk Two about to come out. That's our long-form interview show with Louisville artists. Uh, one is going to be with Ramel with Two Wells, a local hip-hop MC, and the other is going to be with Krishna and Marty Edlin. Uh, Krishna is in the heavy metal band Cyclops Shaman, and they are both in uh, an Alice Cooper cover band called Pretty Little Things. So, uh, yeah, keep your ears tuned for that. Uh, tonight's episode was recorded and produced by John Beecham and Troy Kramer. Uh, we are edited tonight by Mayplex Monk. Um, so if you do hear any kinds of differences with the recording quality, uh, that's because of Troy and I. Uh, but we did want to give our thanks to Mayplex Monk for editing this for us. Um, and if you would like to support the show, uh, best way to do that is to tell a friend or an enemy. Uh, you can leave a comment or a review on iTunes, Google Podcasts. Uh, you can also share us on social media and like American Fantastic on Facebook. Uh, you can also become a member of American Fantastic on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, we also wanted to thank danosongs.com for our intro and outro music. And if you'd like to get any royalty-free music for your project, uh, that's an excellent resource to do so. Uh, Troy, is there anything I forgot? No, nah, I think you got it all. All right, we'll see you all next time. Toodles. Toodles. Thank you.